Welcome, travelers. We're aware that your journey was difficult, but prepare to have your questions answered, for you have been granted an audience with the Masters of Modern. And welcome back to Masters of Modern. I'm your host, Alex Kessler, here with my co-host, Ben Bateman. What's going on, guys? And today we have visiting us, Travis Bosey, who is a multiple GP top 16er, multiple pro tours, and writes for ChannelFireball.com. Hello, how's it going? Good. Now, today we are talking about kind of a bra- grab bag of things. We're going to be talking about just good tips and habits to have while playing Magic competitively. Yes. And that will be followed by the deck tech of Soul Sisters. Yeah, it's going to be a lot of fun. I love no. Soul Sisters. Oh, yeah, no. this. I mean, you took this to a modern P- or a standard PTQ back in the day. Years ago, you? yeah. Oh, yeah. It's a big pile of bad cards that synergistically become good. Kind of like, <laughs> that's my MO. That's my MO in Magic. So one thing I wanted to mention is that, you know, during the podcast, while you're listening, if you want, you can tweet at the podcast at the MMCast, and we will respond Always. almost immediately. So we- you can have up-to-date conversations about what we're saying in the future. We love to interact with our fans about Grand Architect and nothing else. Let's (laughs) Um, So, simple gameplay habits that are good to have. Now, we each kind of made, or some of us made lists, unlike Ben didn't, because he's lazy and doesn't do his homework. (laughs) Well, I only did because you forced me to. Right. Unlike Sean Connery and The Rock, my blueprint was in my head. (laughs) (laughs) The best movie ever. Best ever. Um, So, first, uh, you know, one of the best habits that I kind of teach people to begin with is upkeep dice. So a lot of people always miss upkeep triggers, and the way I remember and inform people that they should remember is putting a die on top of your deck, and that way you can't draw a card. It can be a helpful like trick for a lot of different things. I mean, like up- upkeep dice, that's important. But I mean, more more than missing triggers, there are things that are super annoying, like packs and such. Oh yeah. Well, those are triggers. You just you lose because of those triggers yeah, exactly. immediately. They're not optional triggers. Right. They're very important. Uh, so yeah, I mean, I think that's that's like definitely kind of an obvious first one. Just definitely uh, make yourself accountable with with hard and fast physical tools in front of you. I think it's important to realize too that it's not just like a low level thing. You shouldn't feel like a noob if you do that because I've seen the highest quality players put dice on top of their deck, right? And it can be extremely embarrassing if you're playing some pro REL event and you forget to say unsuspend to miss a suspend counter on your Greater Gargadon, as I have done, uh, and lose a game because of it. So it doesn't matter at what level you're playing at. It's a good idea. I know a lot of newer players leave cards that, like the actual card that triggers on top of their deck, and it's something you don't want to do because it looks, it, it can be misconstrued that's the top card of your deck, and there's many reasons not to do that, and you will get called out on it for it by a judge. So the best plan is put something that isn't, and since you have dice on hand, it's generally a good idea. Plus, you can use dice for information. Say you have, oh, I have three triggers I need to worry about, or two, or one. You can use it to kind of remind yourself. I think something else for it's, it's kind of in the same vein is, uh, like you said, don't be embarrassed. I think being overly cautious, just as a general rule at high level events is very important because I mean from the smallest thing like one of my first in fact it may have been my first PTQ when I moved here to Los Angeles in 2010 uh, I remember taking a deck a standard deck and forgetting to list my basic lands on my deck list like it was like and I mean it's the only time I ever did it but it was one of those things where it was like if I had just said to the guy across from me hey will you just read through this make sure you don't see anything wrong with it he would have been like bro you don't have any basic lands on here but yeah, I was rushing, and it's like, you know, I ended up getting a game loss, or a mat- I might even got a match loss for it or something like that. But it totally, you know, I tilted after that, and I ended up... It's the sort of thing where it's just a great example. Like, go to a tournament, make sure there's nothing else in your deck box. Just don't have anything else in your deck box. You can get screwed. Make sure that you have the guy across from you read your list, right? Et cetera, et cetera. Right. Simple. Uh, um, speaking of dice, actually, another thing is a lot of people do this, and I do this if I'm being lazy or just, like, on a Tuesday night draft, but don't use dice for your life total. Um... Multiple reasons. One, because anytime someone might hit the table and they'll roll over and then, well, now you don't know what your life total. Another reason is it forces you to have a notepad, which makes it so you take notes throughout the entire tournament while you're playing. It keeps track of if there's a misconstruction of who did what with dice or whose life total is what. You can go back and be like, well, look, my life changed here for this reason, this reason, this reason. These are our life totals. So it's something that I know a lot of, you know, once you get to competitive magic, you start realizing, oh, you know, we should be taking notes, I should have a pen. A lot of stores offer pads as promotional devices so you don't need to really worry about it, and it's a good habit to have. I think like the biggest key point, like you said, is to have a history, because it's very important to have a history of what happened. Even if it, even if there's never like a problem or a miscommunication between you and your opponent, you can go back later and look and use that information if you're meticulous enough to try to figure out what you could have done differently to recount what was happening in the game. Um, also, if ever there is a miscommunication and you can't figure out who's correct, if one person has dice and the other person has a life pad, the judge is always going to go with the person who has a life pad. Taking notes is good, and that's what a pad is for. So, like, 
you know, if I thought she's my opponent, knowing what's in their hand, write it down, definitely write it down. Cause they're not going to leave their hand open for you to know as much as, you know, sometimes they do in testing, but like, it's really important to know what you know is in their hand. And it also helps like say they have a courser across from me. I can write down every card on the top. So I have a consistent knowledge of what's inside their hand that if you're not taking notes is almost impossible for you to remember. Yeah, that's, I think that's definitely true. And, uh, Fanning out your graveyard is another big one. Uh, just like you know, visually, visually, just kind of trying to be aware of everything that's on the table in in, in the most accountable way. So, and some, I mean, you can actually ask your opponent if your opponent's not like kind of a tool and he was like willing to just cooperate. You can be like, hey, would you mind you know fanning your graveyard out? Sometimes it'll be no, but a lot of people no problem. Right, right. And it's helpful if you just ask at the beginning of the match because again, it's just more information. You don't forget that they have some unearth spell or, or, or a Snapcaster in hand and a Lightning Bolt you didn't realize was there or something. Well, and the kind of in Snapcaster Mage, I always try and keep my graveyard fanned out no matter what deck I'm playing or what I'm doing. And part of the reason that is if I'm playing a card like Snapcaster Mage, I don't want my opponent to know when I have it. And searching through your deck for the first time in the entire match is a sure sign to say, oh, I have something in my graveyard that's relevant. So keeping a fan out at all times, making sure you have it visually available to you to kind of look through. I think you mean searching through your graveyard for the first time. Yes, yes. searching through your graveyard for the first time. Um, allows you to know I'm, you know, let, allows you to not give away information to your opponent when you have effects that are relevant that are in your graveyard. What do you guys think? What are your thoughts on uh, the way the way you actually lay your board state out? You know, some people do the thing where they like to put their lands in front of their creatures, and some people don't care about they stack all their lands together. I mean, what do you, what do you guys feel about that? Uh, I think it doesn't really... I think you should do what's comfortable for you. Uh, you have to, in some cases, comply with your opponent because you're not allowed to have, you know, public information be hidden. But, like, like you know, like, stack... If someone physically stacks all their lands on top of each other, they're not actually allowed to do that. But if you don't complain, they're going to do what they want to do. They're comfortable. But, like, I think that it, it doesn't really bother me. But, I mean, I'm also obviously a special circumstance because I can't see my opponent's board state anyway. So I doesn't, it doesn't really bother me. Uh, I don't. Or do you have like a pet peeve? Do you like? Do you prefer like lands in front or like lands behind them? Well, behind I definitely, I definitely notice that uh, everybody has their little ticks with the way they lay their cards out. <laughs> things that they, they, they <laughs> lay, and there's an angle. You know, I stack all my cards in like a descending right order that are all like exactly symmetrical. Like it's, it's very important that everything's perfectly lined up. You know, some people do the thing where they tap a land all the way, or they've actually put it sideways, mm -hmm. et cetera, et cetera. Uh, for for my money, I mean, I think with land, it's super super important for me so that I don't forget what colors I have available. To like make sure if it's like a blue black land, blue land, blue red land, have them in separate piles. Oh, so I certainly do the same thing. Yeah, because right. otherwise I will definitely do the thing where you know you have like double negative in hand or something like that, and well, you never play that card, but we'll <laughs> uh, say counterflux because it's the same kind of idea, and and you'll get to that moment, you're like, I don't have double blue available. What did I do? Yeah, you've been planning your your whole plan has been up to this moment, and then you're like, oh, I can't cast a spell. Yeah, that's really frustrating. Yeah. There are a lot of like judge rules and things that you don't realize at those high level events that if you don't take seriously you can get kind of biffed on you can get a game loss you can get a warning uh, it's just super super important even even simple things like when you're shuffling your opponent's deck especially that stuff recently with the cheating allegations right be very careful you know make sure like don't give them an opportunity to say what you know hold their deck so you can't see it right hold it clearly or, down or clearly look away while you're doing it so you're not like cheating and go through yeah, yeah. it's definitely better safe than sorry with all of that stuff um, something I want to say about judges one of my things on my list actually is don't be afraid of judges I feel like a lot of new players are afraid to call a judge or afraid to ask a judge a question. Right. And ex the exact opposite is true. You should always, if you don't understand something, you should call a judge and you should not be afraid. And you should also ask them anything. You can ask them anything. Like, you can watch the Pro Tour and you can watch Worlds and see these people who are the best players in the world, they call judges. Because it's better to ask the judge before instead of after and then lose or misunderstand and then play incorrectly and then lose. Yeah, we never be afraid of judges. I mean, ultimately, magic is a game of statistical margins. You're you're basically looking to shave margins in any category you can to get the most efficient build, to get the most efficient maybe time in your match to not go to time, et cetera, et cetera. So if you can if you can cut out the margin of error by consulting a judge more often than not, or reduce the margin for error by doing everything exactly by the book, a die on your deck, the correct way to shuffle your opponent's deck, nothing else in your deck box, et cetera, et cetera, you have a much better chance of getting through a tournament unscathed. Exactly. Well, I mean, Magic is the most complicated game probably ever created, and, and even at pro level, you know, you need, if there's a question where there's, like, these cards are interacting in a weird way that, like, state-based actions are getting involved in the stack and all these things that are generally difficult to kind of smush together, 
it's better to ask a judge have the correct answer than kind of play through it and be wrong and then five turns later get called on it and either a warning happen or a full-on infraction lose exactly game and even if you don't get an infraction if you just misunderstand the card and then your opponent doesn't misunderstand the card when you could have just simply asked the judge for the how the card works you don't want to lose because of that that doesn't right. feel good so yeah go ahead well i mean and we talked about this before in the we did a judges are your friends episode and like judges are there to help they're you know something that i've always said is Anytime there's a problem, ask for a judge. That way you don't feel bad about it when you're calling it, maybe if your opponent is doing something wrong. If you ask it all the time, you won't have that weird tattletale mentality of doing it, which should, you should never have, because they're there to help, and people will take advantage of it if they know that you won't ask for Absolutely. a judge. There's a lot of trolls out there. Right. Uh, yeah, so here's a question I have for you guys. So I'm notoriously kind of a slow player. Um, I'm not really sure what I would attribute that to. i way, way, way less bad about it than I used to be, but in my younger days, I would really take a long time in my turns. I went to time a lot of these events. So something I've noticed is if you're you know ahead and you have a great hand, then it's a simple play, and you know exactly what to do, you'll play quickly. Most people are the same way. You'll lay your land. You're, really good players tend to sort of seem to keep more of a consistent pace in their turns. What are your recommendations for keeping that consistent pace if maybe you're not at that level where you're playing Magic hours and hours every single day, but you're a competitive player. You like to play competitively. You just, you know, you, you, don't, you don't have that cadence because you don't do it every single day. Uh, I think that's a tough question to answer, but the simplest way that I would answer that question is that you should figure out what pace you can most quickly play without making mistakes, and then try to play at that pace all the time, whether it's complicated or whether it's easy, which essentially means if you think your line is easy, make yourself slow down so that you play at a consistent level. Yeah, I think it's it's easier to take your time when you're doing something that's an obvious decision without, you know, going into the levels of, like, time where it's slow play, but, you know, maybe making sure you think about decisions because eventually you're going to hit decisions that take a while. There's That's going to happen. It's impossible to speed those up to a certain extent. Right. And you necessarily shouldn't. But maybe taking your time more to actually think about the easier decisions to make it seem like every thought is important. But on the other hand, you want to avoid slow play because you can get... I mean, it's a problem, and, and it is technically cheating to draw out every decision too long because, you know, oh, I, if I go to time, I can draw or win this match where, you know, and that's, once again, you're breaking the rules. Conversely, how often should you call uh, slow player time on your opponents? Uh, you should do it all the time. I think that this is how slow play always works out in real life. You don't call the judge, you don't call the judge, you don't call the judge, and then you have five minutes left in a round and you call the judge and it's too late. And the judge sits there and watches and he can say, you know, speed up, speed up, speed up, but then the opponent has already dug so much time out of the round that it's too late. Uh, I, I recently, at GPLA, I got drawn out, which means we, bo- we got a draw when we both had two losses, so neither of us made day two. Um, and that happened because I allowed my opponent to waste time in the beginning, and when I called the judge when there's only five minutes left, it's too late, right? He can't really act. He hasn't seen enough what's happening. Whereas if I had called him in the beginning, after game one, when my opponent took 12 minutes to sideboard, then there would have been, you know, more. it would have been more actionable. So you definitely want to call early on that stuff. Um, and you shouldn't feel bad about it because it's part of the game. Everyone is expected to play at a reasonable pace. I think it's interesting, though, because, so, <laughs> I, I, you know, I'm, I'd like to think of myself as a nice person. At these events, I really try not to be a troll type of person. I really try to ask them, how's your day going? How's your deck? That kind of thing, you know? Mm-hmm. Really, like, get into it, be friendly. So when those that moment happens when you're 10 minutes into a match and you feel like they're slow playing you, you feel like kind of a jerk sometimes to be like, can you speed up? Can you speed up? Can you speed up? It's like a kind of an uncomfortable thing to have to say to someone. Like a, you know. Right. And I do think calling a judge in that situation is a better course of action because the judge will then do it for you and you don't exactly. have to keep reminding them. And That's, if they, the judge has like an ability to act if they are not speeding up. I feel like I defer to judges a lot. Like in this case specifically, but in other cases as well, you can ask your opponent. I generally will give them one one verbal warning where I'll say, you know, a draw isn't good for either of us or something like that. Or like, you know, it's this turn has lasted more than a minute. Could you please make a decision? And then after that, I'm going to call a judge because it's it is hard on your you know as your on your own to sit there and constantly remind them and feel like you're the jerk when you're not being a jerk. You're just trying to follow the rules of everyone else. And there's 1,800 people here that are, all have to follow the rules. So that's what the judges are there for. Uh, I like that you said be friendly. That's literally one of the things on my list is be friendly. Like, I think that being friendly makes you a better Magic player. And that's not like a scummy way of saying, oh, if you're friendly, don't make mistakes. No, I mean, we're, play- we're all playing this game to have fun. We're all playing this game because we love it. So, like, if you're friendly with your opponents, then you're going to make friends. Like, you could, like I have, after playing this game for a little bit over a year now and go- playing all over the country, like, I have friends all over the country because I'm friendly. And you, and you will meet a lot of people who just don't talk. They're, like, introverted or whatever. But if you talk to them just a little bit, if you're a little bit friendly, you smile at them when you play, 
they'll remember you. You'll you'll make friends, and that way, whether you win or lose, you get something out of it. I think I think it's very important to remember that this is fun, and these people have the same love of the game as you. So being friendly is important. Do you think this is just kind of a theory? I've never done this, but with the idea in mind that you want to be friendly, and you don't want to just immediately raise your hand and call a judge five minutes into a match if you if you feel like. Maybe they don't understand what they're doing, so that warning comes into play. But maybe, just maybe, and this maybe be, would be a good thing to try out, you sit down at the beginning of the match, and every single match you have the same sort of prepared one minute to your opponent where you just say, hey, my name's Ben, I'm here, Like I love playing Magic, ultimately I want to win, and I'm going to try to play within the rules. I'm, I try to play at a reasonable pace. If we slow down, I probably will call a judge, just a heads up on that, not saying it to be a jerk, just want to say it from the outset. And maybe... I don't know. I definitely think that's the way to go about it. I think you can also even at, at first, especially at least to your opponent, blame it on yourself in a, in a way. Sure. Actually, but but like, hi, I'm playing a slow deck. It matters that we're speeding up. I'm going to call a judge to make sure both of us play at a correct pace because even I have sometimes right. the tendency to play slow, and I want to make sure both of us play at a correct pace. You know, this is a you know right. competitive level event, and especially if you're like a little bit into it or after game one, yeah. that we like you know we don't have that much time. We only have 20 minutes left, and we have two possible matches to play. I want to make sure we play this correctly. Sure, sure, sure. Um, and then talk to the judge. Don't necessarily just be like, hey, I play slow. Can you watch me? Be you know make it sound a little less like they're just sure. babysitting you because you don't want that to happen. That's fair. I think that is an excellent idea, but I th- also think that not everyone is as, char- as charismatic as the wonderful Ben. So, like, <laughs> it, it, well, it, it, everyone needs like kind of their own mechanism. Sure. Um, and so, yeah, I think that is an excellent idea, but some people might not be able to as deliver it as well. So, like, you, it, even sometimes it can be something as simple as asking your opponent how much time is left in the match. Yeah. Because then that makes them mindful. Sure. Of like, you know, it, oh, sh- we only have two. We only have twenty two minutes, and we're in game two, and and I'm a game down. I need to play faster. Makes sense. So. Small things like that, I think. One last thing before we get into more specifically gameplay advice. Um, sleeves. So actually, I, I started doing this recently. I started specifically using sleeves that have art on the back. Oh. Because, as I mentioned before, I'm really bad at... like I When I have my hand up, I don't even notice if a card is up. I don't like care or notice if a card's upside down or not. Right. But you know, it, you can very easily mark your deck by having cards be... Or get, especially get called, even if it's accidental, for cards being you know, not all facing the same way. Right. Because, like, when you riffle it, you can feel the bottom of cards or tops of cards. Sure, sure. So I try playing at tournaments with cards with art so that I, like, very easily while shuffling will notice immediately if a card is not, like, the same way. Because otherwise, if they're all the same color or all, like, just a single color back, I will not notice. That's actually another interesting thing to point out, and this is much more minor, but as far as sleeves go... Spend money, get decent sleeves, get sleeves that don't split, have extras with you. Oh, yeah. Have extras with you and make sure no matter what, you're getting sleeves that are not like some super, super thin way that the corner's going to get bent. I I can't even tell you how many times I've gone to a tournament and somebody's called a judge over and said, I think his cards are marked. And you get an unnecessary warning because you just, I don't want to buy new sleeves every tournament, but buy ones that aren't, I think art's a good idea. No, I mean, even on the other side, I'm not even getting called by a judge. So... Uh, I got kicked out of GP. I was X2, like 6-2 or something. It was like, I'm almost there. Maybe not 6-2. That would be great. Um, but almost there. And, and I lost. I was playing Dredge, and my sleeves were old. And I had the, the my opponent was playing Storm, and I had two I had yeah. two thorns in my graveyard and could reanimate both of them. Yeah. But one of them was hiding another card because I got stuck because my sleeves are, like, ancient. And I lost the game because I, like, just when I fanned my graveyard out, didn't see the uh, the answer I needed. Yeah, like a split. Oh, okay. And just, like, lost the game. And, like, when I was, I was like, I moved. I was like, oh, this card was here this whole time. And just got, like, it was sticky when I moved my game that one time. And just, that was that was the game. And, like, your my cards, my sleeves being old cost me my game. Right. Not, like, just in gameplay. Not even in, like, a judge coming and getting involved or them being marked. It's just literally they can make you play worse. Oh, here's something to point out. And this kind of falls into gameplay. But this is also just sort of general awareness. So a lot of the time you, you think about a card that's played a lot. A great example for me was I once played against uh, Tron deck that did the Unburial Rights package. And Iona came into play. And I didn't realize that Iona it doesn't it doesn't trigger when it enters the battlefield. The color is named before it enters. Oh, yes. So oh, I didn't no. respond to it until it was already in play. Right? And I obviously realized after that I was I was totally waffled. I just made that up. Uh, I didn't realize I until like after it. that I was uh, screwed. Let's go with waffled. I didn't realize until after that I was waffled. Love waffles. Uh, and uh, it's the sort of thing that could have been avoided if I had just said, Can I see that really quickly? and, and read it really carefully. I thought I knew what the card did. Oh, read your cards is like the first advice I think every Magic player learns or should like we that if we can infer that to you, reading the cards that you're playing and playing with the amount of mistakes people make from just like oh that card does that I had right. no idea. Well, I, yeah, I mean there's just and there's all these small things, small things you don't think about like 
let's pretend that you're not somebody who plays a lot of Vendillion clicks, and somebody plays a click against you. You might not realize that the card, in fact, goes to the bottom and you get to draw another card. You might be thinking, they're just going to take a card out of your hand, you're going to discard it. It's, it's that sort of small thing where it's like, if you don't have a lot of experience playing against a certain card, read it very, very carefully. Right. Not only their, but yeah, also your own. I think it's it can often be forgotten. There's little things on cards that you can target yourself with a V-click. Right. Stuff like that. Right, right. You just don't realize it, you know? Anyway. Good advice. Also, just one more thing about the sleeves. Also, if you have art sleeves, uh, it's not my personal preference, but again, it's not something that really comes up with my, for me particularly. You also are less likely to lose your own cards. Like very, There's very common cards like O-Ring and Vanishing Light now where it's very easy for your opponent to accidentally scoop up one of your cards. Right. Uh, and if you have unique-ish sleeves that are art or whatever and they have plain sleeves or a different art, it's very easy to notice that, hey, you have one of my cards. Right. Um, yeah, like the first thing on my list uh, is to do your thinking in bursts. And what I mean by that is, like, say you've drawn your card, and so you're thinking about what you're going to do for this turn, and you know that you want to cast something in combat. You have the option to cast something in combat or play a creature. Well, depending on what you do, depends on what your opponent's going to do. But if you attack and then think about things in combat, and then he doesn't block because you thought about something in combat, and then in your second main phase you think again and then you play a creature, well, then, like, he knows that you had real options, unless you've just playing, been playing at a consistent pace the whole time. Like, like, say you're, like, Reed Duke, who always takes the same amount of time. Something that Reed does is that he literally, if you watch him play, you can see that almost all of his turns take the same amount of time, and that's because he's being very diligent about it. He's also known as kind of being slow, but that's because he's being diligent. The main thing to take away is that if you're not like him, and very few people are... You want to do most of your thinking at once at the beginning of your turn so that you don't give away free information to your opponent. Because if you stop and think during crucial points in the turn, you are giving your opponent information by the things that you can put you on, especially in Constructed, that you could possibly have in your hand. So you want to kind of do all your thinking in bursts. I'm often very guilty of doing that. I, I play, like I said, I play at one pace till that crucial moment where there's two or three options. And then I, you know, I... I Move my lands around, I furrow my brow, and I definitely have noticed that's that's definitely one of the big flaws in my game that I, I've always wanted to be able to fix. And that consistency, I've thought about that before, putting a timer down to my left and actually trying to take exactly whatever it is, any given phase or any given turn, 30 seconds or 60 seconds, and make sure you don't go past it. Uh, I think especially in testing, that's a good thing to do, so you kind of keep aware of what your general pace is. I think when you're in a tournament, having an actual timer on the table could be dangerous just because you'll start rushing when you shouldn't be necessarily. Because, yes, you're giving your opponent free information, but 99% of the time, you should be playing that way. But that 1% of the time that you're not, you shouldn't make it more stressful than it already is if you do need to think about something because something crazy happened that you came from a field that you didn't know was going to happen. Yeah, honestly, I think like taking extra time when you have a complicated board state like Ben said that he does is okay it's reasonable everyone does that and trying to be as diligent as Reed is, is kind of a trap because if you do that you run the risk of going getting a draw because like he famously with miracles when bonfire was in standard would always look at his card and look at it for the same amount of time to not give away information whether it was a miracle or not and people tried to copy him but not everyone is him and right. you, you end up just wasting a bunch of your time, and that's not necessarily a good thing. I think it's okay to take a bunch of time. If, if it's complicated, if there's 12 permanents in play, non-land permanents in play, it's complicated. You should take time. I just meant that you want to make sure that when you're thinking, you do it all... Like, you understand that you only have so many options in your whatever turn it is. You only, can only do so much. So decide what those things are all at once, and then if it's going to change based off what your opponent does, snap it off. So that if I know that if he blocks, I'm doing this, or if he attacks, I'm doing this, I make that decision so that, A, I don't waste a bunch of time, and I don't give away information. Also, it can be scary to your opponent. Like, if your opponent attacks with one creature, and you snap block or snap double block, like, you don't care what he does, it's intimidating. And you can, and then people, you'll make your opponent go into tank, well, oh, he already knew what I was going to do, like, do I need to do something different now? And they'll just play it incorrectly. When you just made your decision early, you didn't have special information. You just already knew what you were going to do. Something I think that's actually super, super important. Um, so it's related to that, and it's a gameplay error that I've seen people make before. Is we all use these high impact sideboard cards to some degree in these in these eternal formats, especially where you have options that are incredibly high impact. Great example would be like when you side in Torpor Orb against Splinter Twin, maybe. And you the the idea being that. Once you play a Torpor Orb, they sort of, people will say things like, they can't win. 
And the idea being that you would maybe play a little sloppier or maybe a little bit less conservative once you had played that because you felt like you had a big advantage. I think it's very important to remember that when you do play a threat that seems like you're in a huge advantageous position or you play you know, a sideboard card that puts you at a great advantage, to still play with the same kind of aggressive nature or the same kind of careful but like don't take your foot off the gas just because you play something that seems like it's almost like the auto win. Uh, you can get very sloppy and you can give a game away that way by taking too much time, by becoming too conservative. Uh, I don't know. I, th- I think that's excellent advice. I-, I also think that in a similar vein, just because when, when mulliganing or in the beginning of the game and you're like, oh, he's playing Affinity, I have Stony Silence. This is a snap keep. I have Stony Silence. But your hand, the rest of your hand is trash. You just have Stony Silence and you think it's going to win the game. And then you lose to two Mim Knights and a Steel Overseer attacking you for three every turn. Yep. Because you just never had any of you, you're, you didn't have any of your own game plan. You just had that one sideboard card. And then he was like, okay. And then you lose to something that's more benign. It's definitely like these powerful, swingy sideboard cards definitely win games for sure. But they don't always. And you need to be able to evaluate how the game's going to go, even if you play them. And like you said, you still have to be, if your deck's aggressive, you still have to be able to do what your deck wants to do. You still have to be able to attack with your Tarmogoy for your Bob or whatever, as well as disrupting them, not just disrupt them, because that doesn't beat anybody. Another thing that comes to mind, and this is, this is every format's exactly the same way. We talked about this in mulliganing. Uh, so you take a mulligan to six, you're worried, you know, depending on the player of the draw. You take a mulligan to five, you're generally concerned. Like any format, unless you're in Legacy or something, generally a mulligan to five is like, ah, I'm probably not going to win this game. You almost always lose at four, but... Uh, recently I played a game against a friend of ours, Eric, and I went to five. It's in an eternal format, 100-card decks, similar to EDH, but a little different. Anyway, I went to five in the game, and I totally slumped. And I was totally, I was, oh, I'm going to lose this game. And he was playing, like, a big mana red deck. Powered out huge spells, dragons, uncountable stuff, whatnot. And I ended up keeping, a, it's a three-color deck, a one-lander with, you know, like a brainstorm and a couple other cards. The, the sequence of draws that I got was such that I was able to fix my land perfectly with instant spells on two and three, get down a creature on four, counter his spell on five, and I beat him exactly like I had had seven cards. And he had to convince me to not scoop. I was totally, I mean, right. I was on the draw, I was slumped over, I was tilted. It was the last game of the day, and it was one of the most miraculous wins that I've ever had. I mean, it was, like, incredible. The deck functioned perfectly. And I think it's super, super, super important to remember, you can always win a game of Magic. Even at four, like, you can always win. It doesn't matter what they have. Sometimes it'll just happen. Like you said, two Memnites and a Steel Overseer. They just don't have the right card. A Counterspell deck doesn't have a Counterspell sometimes. It just is what it is. And you always have to remember, no matter what you draw, no matter what hand you have, you play the game out. You make them beat you. I think that's excellent advice. I don't even know why I'm here. Ben knows exactly who he's talking about. Like, if you, you have to always stay positive and believe in your deck. Even if you mulligan a five... You can still win. Your, your deck can still do what it wants to do. Sure, it's not optimal, but their deck could flounder. They could they could have kept a loose keep and only have one land or two lands and need three. Um, there recently at Worlds, there was an excellent example of that where uh, I don't remember the exact matchups, but Josh Utter-Layton was playing uh, Sinalov Sivka, I think, and Sivka is playing Control and Standard, and Josh has to mold a five, and it's game three, and everyone's like, you know, the the commentators are like, oh, this sucks. He's mold a five, and then Josh crushes him. So, like, J- Josh just understood that this is constructed. He needs specific cards for the specific matchup. I, I don't know what a 7 and a 6 looked like because I wasn't paying that much attention. But he went to 5 and then killed him on, in, like, 7 turns. So, like, you can't... You have to always believe in yourself and your deck. If you don't think you can win, then you're not going to. No matter how many cards are in your hand or how many cards are in your opponent's hand. Um, and going back to something I referenced earlier, like, sometimes just playing confidently will make your opponent play wrong. When you know you're dead, if they play correctly and you act like you're going to win, sometimes it makes them play differently. Right, you hollowed them a little bit. There's a pr- fairly famous match I remember watching. I think AJ did a, did a tech on this at one point. It's from a pro tour, I'm pretty sure. I think it was, uh, it was a long time ago. I think it might have been like an in- Innistrad pro tour or something. And it's LSV, and he's playing against, uh, what's his name, Osip something anyway it's a it's like a in an lsv adding most of five or he might even mold a four honestly but one of the cards that he has in hand is a blood artist and the game goes this way where you can you sort of notice osip gets really lazy he it's not like he plays badly he just doesn't he doesn't play aggressively he doesn't go for it and lsv is able to like play the blood artist and just sort of like leverage his way card by card turn by turn slowly taking his life total back up to the point that he eventually in a very long game wins the game and you just, as you watch the whole thing play out, you're like, it's just this incredibly careful series of blocks. This incredibly careful series. He's still being aggressive. He's attacking at times that you're thinking, he's at a low life total, what's he doing? He ends up winning the game because he just doesn't think about it. Until he's at zero, he's not at zero. 
he's got this 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 advantage in Blood Artist that's going to make every one of these combat you know situations kind of favorable for yeah. him. And it's it's weird. You think about that sometimes, players. When you're on the ropes a little bit, you stop attacking, and it's not. It's like often a bad idea because you're not going to win by just sitting back and blocking until you you know draw your haymaker. Right. Especially later in later terms of the game, I try to always know what my clock is, and by that I mean like if nothing changes, if my creatures stay the same and his creatures stay the same, how many turns is it going to take me to kill him? That's yeah, that's good. Uh, a lot of people don't think about that. That's something I just learned from Glenn Jones actually like a couple months ago. He said that he thinks about that every turn after like the third or fourth turn. I'm like, wow, that's crazy. I've never done that. And I've noticed a considerable difference in the way I play uh, when I know how many turns it's going to take me to kill them. Um, and, and in Constructed, uh, like what cards that are likely that I can draw that are going to speed it up or slow it, or what cards he's going to draw that are going to slow it down. So I think it's something you should always think about. It's something that seems very small, but it's easy to do. It doesn't take very much mental agility, and it, it makes a big difference. Right. It, it, it kind of lets you know exactly what's going on in the tempo of the game that you're in and what speeds you either need to what you, actions you need to do to speed that tempo up or to slow it down so that you don't die. Yeah, I think that I think that actually is very, very important because there's this notion that people have sometimes that it's this sort of idea, like, if I get this card in play, well, having a 4-4 four, four on turn 2 is really good, so I'll just win because I got a 4-4 four, four on turn 2 sort of a thing. Or, you know, if I'm able to do this... I mean, that's a bad example, but it's this its this way of thinking where it's like... The great example is like Stoneforge Batterskull, where it's like, I'll just Stoneforge a Batterskull into play. I know this is not modern legal anymore, and if I get that in play, I'll probably win because I got that in play. But, it, you know, just because you have this clock, you have to think about actually how many turns it's going to take to win. What if they have a couple 1-1 one, one blockers? You're on a exactly. much, much slower clock at that point. That you don't have that auto-win mentality unless you really consider this is going to take six or five turns specifically. Right. Exactly. Um, the next thing that I have on my list is to shuffle your hand. Like, you see people... Like, some people were famous for doing it, like... Kibler. Saito or Kibler, <laughs> where they just, like, constantly do it. Kibler, especially, where he just has, like, crazy shuffling. But, like, you see people a lot, a lot of... Especially new players, they draw their cards and they just never shuffle their hand. And then they play their cards, and people who are paying attention, not necessarily me, but people who are paying attention can see the patterns that develop. Like, if it's very common for people to sh- put their lands into the front of their hand. Uh, and, in, and especially in the beginning of games, when deciding if they're going to mulligan, they'll shuffle their cards to the front, they'll shuffle their lands to the front of their hand, and you can literally count how many lands your opponent has in his starting hand. Uh, in limited, this is a huge boon. Uh, to you as I mean it's it's bad for you that you're doing it it's good for your opponent that he sees you doing it so it's so easily to avoid it just every time you draw your initial hand every time you draw your card in your turn just shuffle your hand a little bit before you while you're thinking just like while you're thinking shuffle your hand uh, don't give your opponent free uh, free information this isn't really modern um viable but it's a good example like brainstorming in legacy a lot you'll see people brainstorm and then not shuffle their hand and you you see the cards that they just brainstormed into their hand and which cards they brainstormed away and you can tell like oh they kept one of the cards they brainstormed they didn't keep the other one and then they shuffle and it's usually it's a small percentage it doesn't mean anything but sometimes it's free information then you can right. totally just shuffle your hand and see well see the thoughts before they do it you know what's oh, in their that hand makes it even better. yeah you, you know you, what's in their hand they do it and they're just like Okay, well, they put both cards back on top and shuffled them away. That means they drew absolutely nothing relevant. Or that one card right there, that's a card they wanted that's way better than the two bad cards that they shuffled away. You know what's going on. Oh, they kept two on top. Oh, that one card right there is one of the ones they kept on top. They haven't shuffled their hand since they drew it. Oh, it's that, you know, it lets you kind of stay aware of what's going on. And that, I mean, that actually brings me to another point that I wanted to make, which is the difference between the difference between playing your own game where you're paying attention to what's in your hand, your turns, and really paying attention to what your opponent is doing can be so pivotal for a lot of players. I mean, like, younger players, younger in terms of their magic experience, will focus so much on the faces of their own turn, they'll forget that their opponent might just be giving them free information like you're talking about. Right. You can learn so much from actually just watching your opponent. Like, I, I learned this from the same guy, Eric, who's, you know, played on a pro tour, and he's, like, a very good player and we play very casually most of the time, but uh, he still always says, I don't look at my seven until I've looked at you looking at yours. Like, I, we draw our seven, he watches me look at my hand before he even looks at his own cards. He wants to see the way, because like, just like you said, maybe I got two lands and I'm going to put the two on the right side, he's going to watch me do it. Right, because even if it's nine times out of ten, your opponent doesn't give anything away, that one time where they're like, I, I guess I keep. Then you're like, well, I know I can pressure them super hard now because they probably have a terrible hand that they like are keeping begrudgingly. 
I know that's. I mean, that's like the that's the that's the easiest thing. In the world. Right, right. You just know. <laughs> Which I mean, you can sometimes get Hollywooded out by a good player who kind of tricks you by doing that. Something this is related to what we were talking about earlier about keeping your graveyard fanned out. I was going to mention it then and then think about it. Uh, especially this is a big time game in modern where your opponent doesn't. He's playing blue, so he's probably playing Snapcaster Mage, and he's never even looked at his graveyard one time. But let's say he has it fanned out. And then he draws a card, and then you watch his eyes glance at his graveyard. He right. obviously just drew Snapcaster Mage. Uh, even if he's not so bad to like pick up his graveyard and look, if his eyes look at his graveyard after he draws, he probably drew Snapcaster Mage. So like small things like that can be like a huge percentage because then you can play around Snapcaster Mage for the re- if you're able to for the rest of the game because you know there's a high percent chance he drew it. Which leads me into one of my other points is like since we were talking about Hollywooding. Um, you don't wanna you don't wanna level yourself. One of my like things that I used to do a lot was Think about the worst card they could possibly have. Even though they'd given me no reason to believe that they had it, um, I would play around it. And you can really, really defeat yourself, like de-level yourself, where you, you think they have some card, you play around it, and then you lose the game when you could have just played as if they didn't have it and won the game. Um, and so, like, you, you really... I can't think of, like, a, a very specific example, but if you... This is all kind of like one one solid lesson, like multiple things. If you do think they have a card, if you have a reason to think that they have a card, then you should play around it the whole game. But if but if like you shouldn't just like play around a card three turns and then decide, oh, I don't think they have it randomly, and then lose to that card because they did have it, and then you stopped playing around it. Like say, end hostilities is a good one, and 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 limited. Like if you think that they have, if they're giving you reason to pl- think that you have it, you should play around it. Uh, and like this is my final point. Sorry that. You shouldn't. You certainly should not use bush league bluff stuff to like make your opponent like. You'll see people like look at their blue mana or like t- go to tap blue mana and then untap it to make people think they have you have a counter spell or whatever. What you if you're going to bluff or if you're going to watch your opponent to try to figure out what card they have, you should use in game mechanics. I can't really think of a good example in modern for this, but so I'll use a limited one. Like right now, one of the cards that you can really, really blow someone out in, in limited is like Dragon Scale Boon, which gives your it untaps your creature and gives it two plus one plus one counters. But it costs four mana, so it's pretty easy to tell if your opponent has it. A bluff that you could make is to attack your 2-2 two, two into their 2-3 or their 3-4, uh, and then when you have the mana to cast Dragon Scale Boon. If they put you on it, then... You've done that in-game. You've bluffed. You haven't bush-leagued something. You've, you could have bluffed two damage to get through. And if they are good, then they have to play around Dragon Scale Boon for the rest of the game, or it could just totally blow them out. Sim- similarly, if you are the defending player in that position, and you put them on Dragon Scale Boon, you have to make that decision, like, do you actually think they have it? If not, then you block and find out. And if you do, then you have to continue to play around it the whole game. You can't play around it for two turns and be like, oh, well, he doesn't have it, I don't think, and then just get smoked. Right. Something I want to add to that really quickly... Um, and then I actually had a question, sort of a point, something I'm not really sure. Something I wanted to add to that really quickly was uh, how, when you're playing against a blue deck and it's an aggressive format that has reasonable two mana counterspells, and you are playing a deck that is not dead to counterspells, but you're going to lose some of your cards, get waffled, so to speak, uh, how aggressively do you play into counterspells? Like, like as a general rule, you, you can kind of get paralyzed as a player sometimes. Oh, it's going to get countered. I have to wait until he taps out or something. Well, in modern, I kind of feel like most of the counter spells exist in the format to make you do that. So, like, Mana Leak is all about making you, like, delay until the late game. Remand is all about making them delay in the late game. The only time to do that is if, you know, you think they're on the Remand plan, and you're just like, well, they really just need to draw more cards, and I don't want them to draw cards. But otherwise, playing into their hand, their game plan is to make it so you don't do stuff. So the best thing you could do for them is not play spells, even if they have the counter spells. So making them have it to a certain extent is a much better option than, you know, playing into the game plan that they want you to, to of, of being afraid to play spells. I mean, let's just say, like, in, you're playing black-green or something, and you're against a blue deck, and you have a Tarmogoyf and a Liliana and, I don't know, some other card that costs between two and four mana. And and you're, you're you know, do you just play that Liliana into a counter spell? Maybe they let you resolve the, uh, the Tarmogoyf and... That you're, that you're holding up a mana to counter that Liliana. I mean, do you hold it until late game, or do you just aggressively make them use the counter spell so that when you draw the next one, do you, uh, know, what I, do you know what I'm saying? I mean, I think there's definitely maybe two ways to go about this, but I, I do think you play into it. I think if you have another spell that is just worse than Liliana, and you right. think they're on the counter spell, play the worst spell. Sure. But otherwise, I think you like you kind of have to call them on their bluff, otherwise you're playing into their game plan and letting them scapeshift right. and kill you instead of putting pressure on them and stopping them from doing it. So this is something, and, and that leads into the comment that I wanted to make. And this is kind of a life lesson that I think is good in Magic as well. 
Uh, everybody in, in Magic, you start at some level, maybe you start at a PB level and you get up to a Pro Tour level, but we're always always trying to improve. We're always trying to get better. We're always trying to play at higher level events. And, and inevitably, what happens is you find yourself moving from losing at a GPT to winning a GPT to scrubbing out, losing with your matches to PTU to top aiding a PTQ, et cetera, et cetera. And you move up the ranks. And each time you do it, the players you play against are a little better, the competition's a little stiffer, and we all have nerves. You get into a situation you're unfamiliar with, it can kind of spook you. I made this point last week, and I think it should not be taken lightly. Magic's a game. It's a really fun game. It's a really competitive game, and you can have a great time. You can meet friends. You can accomplish great things. Or you can travel. But at the end of the day, I thought of this because what you said, the worst thing that can happen. It triggered for me. The worst thing that can happen in any game of Magic, no matter what level you're at, is that you lose, you pack up your cards, and you go home, and your life continues. No matter how... Uh, I play Death Magic, where <laughs> <laughs> we each have a gun pointing at each other, and whoever loses, done. But I think I'm on it's the wrong podcast. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think it's just important to sometimes take that moment, take take five, ten seconds, just kind of close your eyes, take a deep breath in your match, and just remember, like, if I screw this up, if I if I play into the counter spell and he has it, or if I make a mistake here because I or I sideboard incorrectly, it doesn't matter. Like, you want to win, but your life's going to go on. And if you just do that, you might play a little better. You might you might kind of psych yourself out of being psyched out and just kind of trick your nerves. It's obviously a lesson that you can use in any aspect of your life, but especially in this, because we take this game so seriously, we get so invested, we make it mean so much to us sometimes that I think that that paralysis can almost tilt you on its own if you let it get to you. I really want to pile on. I, I cannot agree more with what you're saying for two reasons. One, it's important not to be tilted, because like if you are so super invested that any loss makes you tilted, this is going to be a snowballing effect you're going to lose. But here's like a personal example for me. So like when I... After after I first qualified for my for the first pro tour, uh, I was super dedicated to getting better at Magic. I was going to as many events as I could. I was going to GPs that were far away, that were expensive, alone. And one of the very first ones I went to alone, I did not make day two. So now I'm in a foreign city and I don't know anyone. And uh, I I'm just doing nothing. And it was miserable. I had one of the worst experiences in any Grand Prix I've ever had. So over the last like 16 months since then. Um, I have made a bunch of Magic friends, and now, honestly, it's okay. One of the greatest things about Magic is that every one of us who plays this game are alike. We all have this one thing in common, but most of us are just alike in personality in general. And so if you make friends, then it's okay. It, it's not okay. We all want to win. Everyone wants to do well. I didn't pay $400 to fly to the Toronto to lose. But if that happens and I do lose, now I have these people, this network that I can spend time with and have fun with and do other things with so that... On day one, if I don't make it to day two, it's not the end of the world. It's okay. And then you're under so much less pressure. Like, if you spend money to go somewhere, like, to go, even like even if it's in your state, like, if you just spend a day to go to a PTQ or whatever, there, if you have friends to hang out with afterwards, or you, it helps you understand that there's not, it's not the end of the world, like you said, and then that pressure is off your shoulders, and you just play better. You have you have more fun, and you just play better magic. That's just the end of the yeah. day. Because, like, the stuff we said at the beginning about <laughs> about how play with the right sleeves and et cetera, et cetera. Sometimes you're not going to. Sometimes <laughs> you'll just lose. You'll get mulliganed out of a game or you'll get called on a penalty or you'll do something stupid or you'll knock your opponent's deck over and you get a ketchup game on your shirt. Yeah, wear a 10 gallon hat. <laughs> uh, you know, and that stuff will happen. And if you let it get to you and you make it about you make it about that like that self self doubt, self pity, you definitely will play worse. And so Absolutely. I mean, and that's, like I said, more of a life lesson than a magic lesson. But It's an important life lesson and an important magic lesson. Yeah. Uh, so now that we've kind of gone over some of the good, helpful tips we were thinking about giving you guys today, we kind of want to get into the deck tech. Uh, tonight we were doing Soul Sisters. All right, I want to break down kind of what Soul Sisters is. Soul Sisters is a deck that's all about gaining life and getting in there with a white weenie strategy. White weenie strategies are generally the aggro strategy focused on a bunch of low, efficiently costed one-drop creatures that are white. Hence, white weenies, they're small and white. Um, they do this also by pumping them with effects that, you know, give all white creatures plus one, plus one, like Honor of the Pure, and effects like... And then on top of that, this deck even has a semi-token theme with stuff like pe Spectral Procession, which puts you three creatures in the play. Um, the deck itself gains a lot of life because of cards and its namesake, the Soul Sisters. These are Soul Warden and Soul's Attendant. Both of these cards are one-drop one-ones that when, they, when another creature comes into play, you gain a life. Uh, these can get actually pretty out of hand because your deck is all about turning out as many creatures as possible using effects like Squadron Hawk and Ranger of Eos that even lets you buy more um, of the Soul Sisters. The deck's other namesake card, Martyr Sands, which is one of the things that really power levels it in Modern, is a card that when you tap it, 
and sacrifice it, you reveal cards in your hand and you gain life three times as many white cards as you reveal. Um, this really lets you go over the head and lets you get ahead with cards. The next important part, the major life gain threats. So you have both Sarah's Ascendant and Johnny's Primate. Both of these cards, uh, when you gain tons of life, become extremely efficient, low-cost, giant threats. Sarah's Ascendant becomes a 6-6 six, six flying lifelinker. And the Johnny's Primate just gets bigger with every piece of life gain information. And the nice thing is that each trigger off of each of the different souls... Soul Sisters gains you individual counters on a Johnny's Primate. So you could very easily curve one into the next into more, and then you eventually will snowball into a huge... Like, I've seen 10 tens on turn three. The, the gist of the deck is that one for wanting my 1-1 one one with your Lightning Bolt's really bad. So if you don't have a way to stop my plan, I'm going to have more creatures and more life than you. And I will eventually just stomp you with big creatures that you can't deal with. Well, it, it, it kind of attacks at two different levels. It attacks on the first level of a lot of decks in the format are all about getting your life total to zero, and it makes it very difficult to do that. Burn can't really beat it very easily. Even Delver right now has trouble because you're gaining so much life. Um, eventually, you'll just get above and beyond anything that Valkut and Scapeshift can do to you because their like, max is like 36 in any reasonable amount of time, and so you just get out of reach of them being able to kill you. So the life gain is, can be very strong, uh, on top of that, you're playing the white weenie aggressive strategies, and and on top of that, your threats can become very big out of nowhere, like Sarah Ascendant, like a Johnny Pride Mate. Yeah. Both of these ca are cards that become you're an aggressive deck that's also stopping other aggressive decks. The other version, I was going to say, the other version of this deck you see occasionally pop up is a hybridized version of basically this and tokens because they have a lot of similarities. So you see people sometimes either splash black. Yeah. Uh, to go sort of like the black-white version, you can get Tide Hollow Sculler. I've seen people play Immortal Servitude because that obviously... Well, now what's what's good card. about that is is uh, the um, Viscopic Guildmage yep. lets you kind of start just killing them with the life gain. Um, and also uh, Lingering Souls. Lingering Souls. And that's really what it comes out. It's like Lingering Souls is a very, very, very good card. And yeah. by playing black, you get access to it. And yeah. it kind of is, goes along with the game plan. What's interesting is uh, this deck actually just top-aided GP Madrid. And the deck at GP Madrid was playing absolutely zero of the Soul Sisters. It was just playing Martyr of Sands. Because right now, everyone and their mom is playing cards that destroy 1-1s because of the popularity of uh, Pyromancer. Right. So this is, you know, the, the reaction to this is playing more resilient threats. And Martyr of Sands, because you can sacrifice it, makes it so it's much more difficult for them to get blown out. Absolutely. I mean, that, that pretty much covers the gist of the deck. You obviously get Path to Exile, so white cards is good. Um... But, I mean, that's kind of what the deck does for the most part. You gain life, you win incrementally with uh, small creatures that grow, and Sarah Ascendant ultimately is the reason that the deck can win because you have that ability to attack. I think, can you turn to it, or is it turn three? I think you can turn to it, right? Sarah Ascendant? Yeah. Can you, you can turn two. Yeah, 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 you can turn. So the having it's a... Martyr of the Sands. Yeah. 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 That's kind of like, that's like that whole, like, nut draw idea. You know, every, right, right. every deck like this that's going to be a pile of junk cards... Essentially, that's synergistic in some way. Has yeah. they have to have that ability? That's like what we talked about, or we didn't ever talk about. We someday will talk about Hunted Handsome. <laughs> the idea of getting a seven-seven trample on turn two. It's the same idea. You have to nut draw it, but it's the reason it's viable. So anyway, uh, let's kind of take this list through the gauntlet yep. and see how it how it matches up. So the first deck in the gauntlet is Blue Red Delver, which we have talked about every week. And, <laughs> It, this is really good against Delver. This is this is exactly the problem for them. Right, especially the version that doesn't have the um, the actual Soul Soul Warden um, cards because you're no longer getting blown out by Electrolyze. Right, and really Lightning Bolt's not that good against you. All your threats are resilient to it or gain you value, and they can't kill you because your life total is so large, and you can consistently keep making it bigger. Right. Not to mention, play Squadron Hawk, which is just the biggest wall for a Delver to get through, because it's just right. like four turns where they're just going to have a blocker, and eventually those cards are going to get bigger. I think that the biggest reason that this deck, I think this deck smashes Delver, and I think the biggest reason is because they can't really do anything about Martyr Sands. And once you gain like 15 or 30 life, and your Sarah's Ascendant is a 6-6, they have no spell in their deck that can stop a 6-6. So right. you have a 6-6 flying lifelink that blocks anything they're going to do to you and attacks them and gains you 6 life, and they can't do anything about it. Right. Their Not, deck literally has zero cards that can can deal with a 6-6 flyer. This is the reason it did so well at GP right. Madrid. This deck was very well positioned, and this Pliot took it there. Like The decks that are bad matches for it, like Pod, weren't around until the top 8. Birthing Pod is the second deck in our gauntlet. Speaking of which. Um, <laughs> speaking of which, I will let, uh, I'm gonna let Travis feel this one. Uh, honestly, I don't know what the... I, I think it, it feels like a bad matchup to me, that, that Pod versus Soul Sisters, because they can do things that are like kind of bad for you. 
Well, um, it, it's they, all, yeah. Like your your deck wants to go long. I mean, well, I guess it doesn't have to, but against a deck like Pod that has like kitchen things and stuff, you kind of yeah. have to go long. And their deck wants to go long. It's like I mean, that's yeah. what their deck wants to do. So it's usually kind of bad for you. Things like abrupt decay, things like that are bad. Yeah. Where they can just so easily deal with. You. They don't like unlike Delver, where right. they can't deal with the six six flyer. That thing can get abrupt decay all day. I mean, if, yeah, so, Delver, Delver is essentially a fair deck. I mean, it's, it's yes, it, it does really unfair right. things, but it's a, Pod at its best is an unfair deck because Indeed. it has an infinite combo. Well, yeah, it, their it, life total is relevant. Right. If they're going to Malira Pod, it, it doesn't matter. Right. Their deck is already you know there are cards that are good against and resilient against ag- aggressive threats, especially ones on the ground. And then on top of that, they'll just go over the top of you because they can go infinite. Right. Uh, like top red cap doesn't care what your life total is when you can when you can do it infinitely. Exactly. So. Well, and there's that, and then on top of that. Uh, they just, they have, like you said, they have the ability to value you out. So when you have a bunch of one ones and that's what you're winning with and they can do something stupid, like just even just like potting into a, an Orzhov Pontiff yep. and just wreck your board and right. they get a creature out of it. So yeah, I think this is a bad matchup. Um, you'd not, you can't disrupt them very easily. Path to Exile is kind of your only disruptable card for them mm-hmm. and that's not that good I against Pod. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, th- th- this is one of the reasons your sideboard in Soul Sisters is going to be so heavily against combo. Yeah. Like, the Splinter Twin and Pod and Tron are your three worst matchups and all three of those, your sideboard slots are going to have to be guaranteed towards. And we all know White has like the best sideboard options. Right. So and, that's... And there, there is some game you get but you're definitely down. I think you don't have as good of a chance of winning and, and Pod is a terrible matchup because they're also versatile. Like they Pod of those three cares the least about the cards you bring in against them. Because, worst case scenario, you stop their pod, well, they just wait until they get a card that stops your threat and then still just are beating you down or stopping you from beating them down in the meantime. Anyway, moving on. You get to burn. This is laughable. I mean, this is obviously... This is one of the reasons you play the deck. I think the reason this did so well at GP Madrid is that the format walking into it was mostly burn and delver. And so... That's such a huge part of the the format that you just don't have a problem with. I mean, if it's all it's already laughable, except that Ariac Champion is protection from red, which makes right. it even funnier. <laughs> yeah. Like this, we don't even have to talk about the matchup. It's pretty obvious. This yeah, deck I mean, game. If you see your opponent play turn one mountain, you just fist pump because you're just auto one. Like, yeah, you, it's it's almost unlosable. Yeah, you just I mean you gain so much life. Um, <laughs> Ascendancy is really bad for you. Well, I, mean, I do want to mention here and. Um, Travis, I know you want to kind of talk about it. The newest NDC list sound just like the worst possible nightmare for you. Before, it was probably bad as it was because yeah. they could combo off and you're not very... You don't really interact with them, but now they just are much more resilient and the from the new decks from uh, the worlds are just super powerful. Now, it is it is worth noting, and we mentioned this earlier, Fate Stitcher is their main win condition and you have Path to Exile in your main Path deck and that's the best card against that build of the deck. So, you do have that advantage, but ultimately, they're such a fast combo deck. Ultimately, that is the reason the cards will get banned because it's unfair and not fun to play against. Right, but, so that's kind of the issue with Ascendancy and, you know, we wanted to talk a lot about the new Ascendancy lists and how they're different from the first time, but on the other hand, we don't want to do a whole episode on that because most likely this deck will not be around for more than a month and a half from this point. You know, bannings come out in the middle of January, and Ascendancy is going to be banned for multiple... I mean, like, obviously I'm not... I can't 100% guarantee that, but it breaks the turn two rule. Yep. And... Or breaks the turn four rule by doing it on turn two. Yeah. And it... This, along with Treasure Cruise and or Dig Through Time, is becoming so dominant in the format that the format is literally unplayable. I mean, it's worth noting, like, since Ben talked about how, like, Path to Exile is certainly one of your best cards against them, and I completely agree, especially against the the older green versions, like, they have a serious problem with uh, Path to Exile. Like, they try to go off, and then at some point you path them, and then they're like, oh. And you that might only gain you a turn, but sometimes that's all you need if you have, like, a huge Johnny's Pride Mate or whatever. Um, The problem with the new deck is... And this is something that I noticed. Like Jerry T wrote an article recently, and the basically the title of the article was "Raptor Broke Modern," and he did because the problem with the new modern deck is the problem with the new modern deck is that it doesn't have to go fast. And there's people in the comments who post like, "I don't I goldfish with this, and it doesn't kill people till turn four, or turn five. How is this better?" And it's better because you can just control your opponent until you're ready, and then you stop them. Right. So this version can say, oh, you have a, I think you have Path to Exile. Maybe you have two Path to Exiles. Well, I'll wait till I have five mana, and then I'll do it, and then have Counterspell backup for your Path to Exile. Or wait on turn four when you tap out for an Ajani Pride Maid and two Soul Wardens or a Martyr of Sands, and you're like, oh, you sure. tapped out? Oh, great, I won. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the last deck we have listed here is Scapeshift. And again, this is another reason that I think it did so well at Madrid. Scapeshift is one of your best matchups. Scapeshift yep. is a deck more than anything that if you get up like past 30 life, 
they probably can't beat you. Like they, 36 life is the the line. If you get past 36 life, which is completely achievable I mean, in this they, deck. If they, if they live the dream, they can do 72. But that is... That's if you're not, not beating them down yeah. and you just like... That's, that's <laughs> not counting for your Saracen as it's attacking them for 6, and they, they which is another card they can't deal with. If right. they don't counterspell Sarah's Ascendant, they don't have a card in their deck that kills it. So it's a very fast clock. I mean, it's going to kill them in 3 attacks probably. And... They just don't have time. They don't have time to do what they want to do. So even if, even if they do cast Scapeshift, you've gained so much life from your Saracenants attacking them and your Martyr of Sands gaining you life that they just can't do it. I would say this matchup probably is actually your best matchup. I think even more think so, so than Burn. I yeah. think Burn has the ability to maybe possibly... Like you get mana flooded, kill a couple of your threats, and like get in. This deck almost can't beat you because they're not going to go off fast enough. They don't play enough counter magic. You're just going to. It's an excellent. Well, it, it, what it comes down to is burn. If they keep a creature in play, we'll still keep doing damage to you. And they have the spells right. to start removing spells. With, you know, Scapeshift, their deck doesn't have that good of a game B plan or a game B plan that's good against you. Their game B plan is beating down with Snapcaster Mages and like dirtily 1 1s that do other things. Right. And, and their plan A is too slow. Like yeah. Red Deck's plan A is at least fast, super fast. Whereas Scapeshift is so slow that it's just like, you, you just, they are, I feel, I agree with Ben. I think it's your best matchup. Right. Yeah. So it, anyway, that, that pretty much covers the gauntlet. Yeah. I mean, it, it's interesting because like this deck is kind of very well positioned right now yeah. for the first time because, you know, the worst matchups, and we don't, we're not going to bring it up too heavily in the gauntlet, especially because we never cover the deck, but uh, Tron decks are really your worst matchup. Yeah. It, it's Tron and Birthing Pod. And Tron, the problem with Tron is that your deck can't beat Emrakul. Because once they get Emrakul in play, they literally... Few will, decks can. Yeah, few decks can. It's a powerful yeah. magic card. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, you you know, your game plan A of just, like, surviving doesn't really help against them. Right. And, it, you know, the deck that this, the decks that this deck has the biggest problem with are inevitability decks. Decks that, like, if you let me do my thing, I'm going to kill you, you'll have problems with... Or your plan is to be aggressive, which is harder, because they have plans against aggressive decks. Sure, sure. Um... The reason that you know your best matchup is Scapeshift is because they, their inevitability has a like basically a, a ceiling that you very easily breach and hate for, which is life gain. Um, this is, I mean, ba- the, the the final point of this deck is this is the classic example of you can brew in modern. It's a brewer's paradise. You can come up with all kinds of cool ideas, and there's a lot of synergy among strange cards. But it all comes down to position in the format, and you can't play. The reason that a deck like Black Green is going to have a fifty percent chance against the field any given weekend is because the cards are actually good as opposed to a deck like this which will have a place and be very good at times but right. also given a specific format might be just total garbage this is so direct so like right now burn delver scapeshift those are the three piggies three of the biggest pillars in the format oh this deck is really good against all three of those things this is a great weekend to play this oh pod tron and black green decks are really popular well I have okay games against Black Green, but Tron and Potter are my worst matchup. Then right. this probably isn't a deck to choose that weekend. It's a game that's very metagame dependent. And since this deck costs like, the the cost of this deck is much less than most modern decks, so it's okay to be able to pick it up and put it down whenever. Right, and it's a great place to start. To be totally honest, exactly. if you're like, yeah, if, very, if I'm new to modern, start. this is one of probably the best decks to pick up at first. And you get to do fun, powerful things. You get right. to attack people with six six flying lifelinks. Like who doesn't want to do that yes. for one mana? Super like, mana's insane. <laughs> Um, yeah, so I think that pretty much wraps up the gauntlet. Um, yeah. So, you know, as always, we want to bring up that you guys should go check out the Command Cast. It's our sister podcast on RocketDump.com. Uh, Jimmy and Josh, who have been on the podcast over the last couple of weeks, we both do great Commander content. If you like Commander, you want to try maybe getting into it because all your friends play it, it's a great place to start. Uh, also, you know, question of the week. What do you guys think are good play habits that you have that you want other people to know about? We'll retweet it. Tweet us at us at the Command Cast. Uh, sorry, that's not our thing. At the MM cast. <laughs> um, and or put in the comments below on rocketjump.com. And, you know, follow us on Twitter. I already said our Twitter. My Twitter personally is at Kess Wiley. My Twitter is Ben underscore Bateman. Uh, but I prefer you guys check me out on Instagram, Ben Bateman Media, as I like to say every week. And, my, and Travis's <laughs> Twitter is at Sightless Eye. Too much for you, Travis? No, not at all. I love it. I will support Ben until the end of time. Fantastic. Um, <laughs> Yes, so the sheet says say goodbye. Say goodbye. Goodbye. Goodbye, guys. Thank you for your attention. For further inquiries, send an email to the MMCast at rocketjump.com or ask us on Twitter at Kess Wiley and at Secluded Glenn. See you later, alligator. <laughs>